A couple Saturdays ago, <clears throat> I was at a uh, yoga studio in Malibu, and we were talking about wisdom. And the talk was about how important wisdom was, and what are some of the characteristics of wisdom, and how in Buddhism we have the two wings of the bird, the wing of compassion and the wing of wisdom. So the bird can fly in a, a good way. And, and I thought to myself, well, where does wisdom come from in Buddhism? And, and can we define it in a, in a, in a way that's, that we can understand it? And so I went about thinking. And we oftentimes get our wisdom by simply thinking. So if you have a lot of time on your hands and you enjoy thinking... Uh, you'll become wise eventually. Um, and so it, it came to me that there, there are probably a couple places in Buddhism where we find wisdom. And, and the first place would be in the Dharma, the sutras, the suttas of Buddhism. And so I thought about the Eightfold Path, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the, the turning of the wheel talk, said to be the first talk that the Buddha gave. And so in that talk, we find the eight path factors, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we find that we can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, sila, samadhi, which is meditation, and panya, which is wisdom. So I thought to myself, well, this is really a good place to start. So, so my adventure and journey in finding Buddhist wisdom would start with the Eightfold Path under the wisdom category of the Eightfold Path. And in that we find we have two path factors, right view and right intention. So now we go, okay, right view, what is right view? And I've read a lot of people talking about what right view is, and most of it doesn't necessarily go along with the traditional teachings of Theravada, early Buddhism. So what you find for sure is right view is understanding the Four Noble Truths in a mundane and supra-mundane way. So understanding the Four Noble Truths in a mundane way seems to me would be the thinking part of it. We'd think about it. We, we would try to understand it. We would gain knowledge from that thinking. And then the supra-mundane way would be the direct experience of the Four Noble Truths. So it would be more of an intuitive knowing rather than an intellectual understanding. Okay, so far so good. So what are the Four Noble Truths? Well, the first truth is that, that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And if we look at the news and read the papers and go on the internet, we, it intellectually makes perfect sense that this life of ours is ultimately going to be unsatisfactory for a variety of reasons. No water, no food, war, you name it. Uh, it's not going to stay good very long. Thankfully, there are those good moments so we don't all commit suicide. Then we go a little bit further and we find that the wisdom aspect in the Four Noble Truths is that not only is life ultimately unsatisfactory, but we have a reason for it. And the reason for our unsatisfactoriness is desire and craving and thirst that can never ultimately be satisfied. So I was in Arizona um, actually this past weekend visiting my brother and it turned out Sunday was Father's Day and we went to a house, friends, he had friends and, and there were men and there were women and there were children which is appropriate for Father's Day. And so one of the women came to me and said, oh, are you a father? And I said, no. And then she seemed a bit surprised and said, well, how did you get out of that? 
And I said, just lucky, I guess. <laughs> and, and I saw that we have this giant desire to replicate. And most of us think about it, they say men think about it quite often every day, about how am I going to replicate. Well, maybe that's not the, the real thought, <laughs> but it leads to replication. And, and so we see this stuff, and then I thought to myself, you know, I've been drinking Coca-Cola for all my, my whole life, and I really like it. But now I'm reading more and more things that are against Coca-Cola. So my desire for Coca-Cola is starting to wane a bit, and, which is probably a good thing. And, and ultimately, I'll probably never drink it again, simply because of what I've read and the scientific evidence that says that there's nothing in it at all that's good for you other than it tastes good. But some people who taste Coca-Cola for the first time think it tastes more like medicine than anything else. So I see this desire and this craving and, and ultimate unsatisfactoriness coming out of that because I can't satisfy those desires. They always keep coming back. And so you go, okay. And it's like when I was smoking. I smoked for 14 years. I quit 1978 at 55 cents a pack which is about how much a gallon of gas costs as well. And I thought to myself, well, how, how come I smoked for those 14 years and realized it wasn't very good for me, but that there was an incredible desire and craving to smoke and to celebrate every event in my life. And so if I went into the grocery store, I'd light up before I went into the grocery store. Remember those days when you could smoke in the grocery store? And you just throw the cigarette butt on the ground and crush it beneath the baby food aisle, and they just you know, <laughs> keep walking, you know. And you just go, wow. So it was. It became a, a whole celebration for me, and I had a lot of events every day to celebrate, so I smoked a lot. And, and then one day I woke up and realized I'd be dead. And wow, I, I, I don't know what prompted that, but it was just the most... It, I, it, that, that dream and that thought in waking had so much clarity that that day I stopped. I stopped smoking. Now, my body, you know, the mind says, okay, you don't smoke anymore. But the body says, yes, you do. And so there were times during the day where I just really wanted to have a cigarette, and I didn't get one. And I slowly killed the person that smoked. And he took a long time to kill, maybe a year or two. But, but the non-smoker finally won, and the smoker finally died. But every once in a while, he's resurrected, almost reincarnated, once or twice a year, saying, hey, wouldn't it be great to have a cigarette? And then I have to kill him again. And, and he goes quickly now. He doesn't go with too much fuss. And, and I just see that, that this craving and this desire will be with me for the rest of my life, even though I haven't had a cigarette since 1978. So, wow, so how do we get rid of this desire? Well, they say the answer is nirvana. That, in the same way I killed the guy that smoked, I can kill the desire that makes that guy smoke. And it's just one thing. It's just real easy to remember. Nirvana is what I need to do, what I need to realize, to end all my craving, all my desires. And then we have the Eightfold Path, which is a, a practical way of achieving nirvana. It has been time-tested uh, by all the Buddhas that ever walked on the earth. Cool. So, so now, intellectually, you, you have the stories, and you have the sutra, and you have people talking and discussing and debating and dialoguing, and you intellectually now understand the Four Noble Truths, so you have this level of wisdom. And then when you start to experience it in your own personal life, then you have this supramundane knowledge, intuitive knowing, that it is absolutely true. No matter what anybody will tell you ever again, this stuff is true to you. 
Another category of wisdom that's often included in the Eightfold Path is right view of the Four Noble Truths and right view of karma. And and at first, when I first read karma being added to right view, I wasn't sure. I didn't think it was perhaps appropriate, but that's just me. When I when I be when I got to understand how important karma is, I, I realized this is maybe even more important than the Four Noble Truths. So now we have to figure out intellectually what is karma. And it's pretty easy. Karma is what we think, what we say, and what we do. Okay, and why would that be important? Because it gives us an option every day to choose skillful and less suffering. That we don't have to rely on a divine lawgiver for grace. We don't even have to have gratitude for having a great day. We just simply need to say, I'm going to have a good day because I'm going to choose in a skillful way what I say and what I do. And in order to do that, I need to have the right intention. I need to have a mind that understands not going for greed, but going for generosity. Not going for hatred and anger, but going for kindness and compassion. Not going for delusion, but always focusing on acquiring, understanding, knowing the wisdom aspects of Buddhism. So here we go, and today's the first day we're going to try our karma out. And we say please and thank you, much to the chagrin of everybody around us, because they're not expecting that, and they don't know how to respond to it. But we don't care, because our karma is affecting us in a good way, and will affect everybody around us in a good way sooner or later. But more importantly, and I spoke about this last time, more importantly, our karma is the only thing that migrates to the next lifetime. It is the most important thing we have, whether you think that is the case or not, because that is exactly what will be going to your next lifetime. All the stuff that you have done, thought, and said in this lifetime, all that energy transformation is heading to the next lifetime. And you aren't. How cool is that? That means everything we do in our life to make our day better is ultimately altruistic. It's for somebody we'll never know. We have never met. There's an old Greek saying that goes, the old men who plant a tree and never will feel the shade are the wise ones. You know, so we're like planting this tree and we'll never experience the shade it's going to give us because we'll be dead. Wow. So now the selfish Buddhist says, well, I really hope they appreciate what I'm doing for them. (laughs) (laughs) And the wise Buddhist said, here you go. It's yours now. You know, so it's funny. We can even be selfish in our last thought. So how important is that? How much wisdom is, do we gain from that? Even just thinking about the importance of karma and, and how it's manifested and how it's created and how it can be useful in this life and really useful in the life that's to come for all of us. And now we think, okay, but you know what? I've been reborn millions of times. I have been born, I have died, I have seen all my friends die, all my pets die. Life is just filled with the misery of birth and death. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) And one day, I just want to get off this. I don't want to ever be born again, because I don't ever want to have to bury anybody else. So how do you do that? In the same way I killed the guy that smoked, I need to kill my karma. And there's only one way you'll ever kill your karma, and that is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while we're alive. Nirvana is the end of karma, and because of that, nirvana is the end of all future rebirths. The Buddha said, I teach the path to immortality 
Not that you'll never have to die, but you'll never have to be reborn again. And if you think about how important that is, wouldn't it be nice never to shed a tear again? Or a drop of blood because you've been cut, you've been in war, you've been killed and massacred, and you just go, wow, I'm so tired of that. So Buddhists have a way out. We need to kill our karma through nirvana. How important is that? Those are two wisdom aspects that just will change your life. And to experience them, to feel them, to know the truth in them is life-changing. So those are the two wisdom aspects that come out of the Eightfold Path in right view. But now we have right intention, which is part of that as well. And what kind of intentions are we talking about? What kind of intentions will lead our speech and action into the world? Intentions of generosity, of kindness, of compassion. So now the second wing of the Buddhist bird appears. We have the wisdom and we have the compassion, which is found in the wisdom. Cool. So now we have to leave the Eightfold Path and seek out more wisdom, because we don't have enough wisdom yet to liberate ourselves. This is, a wis- this is the wisdom necessary to live a good, skillful, wholesome life. But some people want liberation. Some people want to go all the way. And they can't go all the way by simply reading the Eightfold Path and understanding it in an intellectual way. So now we have meditation. And meditation is designed to give us a deeper wisdom. A deeper wisdom. And in Vipassana, we find three wisdom aspects that will become apparent to us as we sit for long periods of time suffering. They are Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. You've heard it before, I'm sure. Anicca, impermanence. Everything is based in impermanence. Everything is changing. Everything is in a constant state of flux. The first wisdom aspect that comes out of Vipassana meditation with the potential for liberation. So not only is everything changing, but you are changing as well. And that's why you don't get to go to your next lifetime. In fact, you don't even get to go to your next moment. Because in that next moment, there'll be a new you. Not radically new, but subtly different. And wow, and it just keeps changing and changing and changing. So you intellectually now start to understand that because you're reading about it and thinking about it. And then one day, you have the experience of impermanence. The shopping center you always went to and the store you loved the most is closed, never to open again. And you say to yourself, how could that be? And then you say, impermanence. Wow. And you look in the mirror and you see a couple extra wrinkles and some more gray hair or less hair, and you go, how could that be? And you go, impermanence. And it starts just to seep in your world of view as you look around the world. And everybody is freaking out now about Iraq. It's terrible. It's going to change. And if you read the history of that part of the world, after World War I, a bunch of gringos got together and decided to sort of cut it in this way. The French and the British and some other folks said, well, we'll we'll give this part of the world to these people and this part of the world to these people, and we'll call it Iraq and we'll call it Syria. And now, just maybe, and I hate war, but maybe they're changing it the way they want to change it. And maybe it'll be okay. And maybe everything changes. And maybe one day, Northern California will secede from Southern California. And we'll have two Californias, and we'll all be really happy, because we'll know we're the best. (laughs) So stuff always changes. And, and in our Vipassana meditation, our insight meditation, it becomes true. Then, the second thing is stuff is always unsatisfactory. Stuff is always unsatisfactory. No matter what kind of car, what kind of house, 
what kind of shoes, what kind of whatever it is that you have and are attached to and think is the best in this very moment will turn out to be ultimately unsatisfactory. Because why? It is changing. And if it changes, we ultimately will not like it. Because we will remember how it used to be. You know? And it used to be better than it is now. And you could probably say that about most things in your life, if you're honest. And the Buddha would say, well, this is just something you need to accept as being truth. That as soon as you attach to it because it's wonderful, the suffering, the dis-ease, the discontent, it begins. It starts. Never to end. Okay, we got that down. And now the third part of wisdom in our Vipassana meditation is the fact that nothing is the way it seems because nothing exists apart and independent in an unconditional way. Everything is conditional and dependent on something else for its existence. Therefore, there is no unique inner essence that defines it as being one thing. And you go, whoa, okay, I don't understand that at all. And why does the world have to be that way? Doesn't everything exist independently? I see a chair and I see a door and I see a window and they all seem to exist independently, but the door is conditional because if the frame wasn't there, the door wouldn't work. And if the frame wasn't for the windows, and you just go, okay. But me, I know I exist because I have the same little voice in my head that's been talking to me my whole life, giving me some good information and some bad information and some ideas. But you know what? That little voice is just an illusion, and I am not much of anything moment to moment other than in a constant state of flux and change. Okay, well, why does that? Why is that a bad thing? It's it's a bad thing because it's an illusion. And it's an important illusion and a necessary illusion because life is really complicated for humans. And we need to be able to be somebody. We need to be able to be something. And with all the for-profit colleges out there, they're helping us in many ways. They're, we're going to be broke or in debt most of our life, and we might be somebody for a while. And then we die. And then we're nobody, and then we get to be somebody again. So, what does this meditation teach us about this? It teaches us not to get too attached, and you don't need to defend who you think you are, because you're really not that person anyway. And as soon as you are someone, then there's something to defend, and something to define, and it becomes uncomfortable, because we're not as good for as long as we'd like to be, we always have these little weaknesses and desires and cravings and, and you go right to the donut store and you didn't want to go there, but they have a sale and you just go, man, I got to go there. So who's going to the donut store? Is it you or simply your hunger that needs to be satisfied? I don't know who's going to the donut store, but he or she shows up and has a donut. So you look at this and you go, wow, you know, this is like really important information, but early Buddhism only took it so far, and then it stopped. But these three insights, these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, have the ability to liberate us and allow us to realize nirvana. Cool. But now, the first century, Mahayana Buddhism said, that's not good enough. Because you're going in another direction. You're only concerned about yourself. And all you want to do is end your own suffering and kill your karma so you'll never have to be reborn again. And yet you forgot about the 7 billion people on earth. Happy Father's Day. 7 billion people. Will we never rest? And now, what are we going to do about them because each one of those 7 billion people are suffering and if you check out because you get to kill your 
karma, then who's going to take care of all these people? How selfish can you be? And the Mahayana came up with this idea of enlightenment instead of nirvana. And it came up with the bodhisattva ideal of being of service to all living sentient beings and accepting your nirvana last. Everybody before you and you're last. And you take a vow to be reborn lifetime after lifetime until all sentient beings have been saved. And of course, you know intellectually, numerically, that is impossible. So you've taken a vow for eternity to come back to this earth, as long as it's here, and help people and dogs and cats and trees and all sorts of things. And they all need our help. And you will never succeed. And you'll never be through. It will never be over. People say to me, you must feel a sense of pride in 20 years of community service. I say, no, I just really feel tired (laughs) and disappointed because it never ends. I could do it another 20 years and there would still be people that need help. You don't go into community service thinking you're going to fix it. You go into community service realizing you're going to fail and it is an endless process of failure but you still show up. And why would a Buddhist still show up? Because people, things are suffering. And that's what the Buddha said. Life is filled with suffering, and there is an answer to suffering, and maybe even if one person ends their suffering, or even, they say, in the Mahayana tradition, even if you feed one morsel of food to a bird, you have reduced suffering in the world. One morsel of food to a bird, you reduce suffering. So, enlightenment. What's the definition of enlightenment? The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. I have that memorized. What's the definition of nirvana? The end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirth. So, for me, Those two definitions are my definitions, and I see them as being different. So we have Mahayana Buddhism, we have Theravada Buddhism. These are two different kinds of Buddhism. One is a therapy, one is a religion. Theravada Buddhism, in its its early incarnation, if you will, was a therapy. It wasn't a religion. They had hundreds of religions in India. But the Buddha said, I have figured out how to end suffering. And you don't have to believe in anything. You just have to do something. And if you do it long enough with clarity and insight, you'll never have to suffer again. So you can imagine 2,500 years ago, it must have been really just a terrible place to live. You know, never enough food, never enough water. Even finding shade sometimes would be an issue. You didn't live very long, so you got married really early. You know, like 12, 13, hell, we'll be dead at 30. Let's have some kids, you know. So it's just, wow, it was just a tough place to be. No dentistry, no antibiotics, nothing. You just died. And then they immediately buried you and planted the tree so you could bear fruit. We've come a long way. Now we live to be 60 or 70. Cool. But we still suffer, we still get sick, we still die. And, and so to hear the words of the Buddha saying, I have found the answer to human suffering, what a relief. What a refuge that can be for someone who's suffering. But now we have this other level of enlightenment, which is the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, which means it has gone from anatta, found in vipassana, that we are not who we think we are, we are not self, it has gone one step further, and now it says everything is not self, that nothing exists independently, the chair and the door, the humans and the dog, all conditional, 
None of them have an essence. None of them may have a soul, depending on how attached you are to the concept of soul, because that's sort of independent and always you. And then the Buddha says, well, there's nothing independent and always you. And so there's a tension there. But I want to have a soul. Because when I was small, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And if I don't have a soul, what does he get to take? Yeah. I'll leave that up to you to decide. So, so getting rid of your soul is really difficult. And it's not really getting rid of your soul. It's getting rid of the concept of soul. It's just, you know, so what? Maybe I do have a soul. Maybe I don't have a soul. But you know what? I'm still suffering one way or the other. Maybe there is a God. Maybe there isn't God. But, you know, he or she, whatever it might be, doesn't seem to make my life much better. It just makes me feel a little guilty sometimes. So karma comes in and says, you know what? You're in charge. I have nothing against you. I always felt the big guy didn't like me as much as some other folks. And my life was worse because of that. And I thought, why did he have to pick on me? But that's just the way I felt until I came to Buddhism. And then I said, hey, there's no big guy picking on me. It's just me, deluded and greedy, (laughs) too much hatred. It's all about me. All i got to do is fix the inside, and the outside will be fine. So for 30 years, I've been working on fixing the inside. And it's still not fine yet. How long does it take? How many lifetimes do you got? It takes a really long time to fix the inside. But once it's fixed, you are going to have an incredible life. Extraordinarily ordinary. Nothing special will ever happen again. Which is really good. Because if it's really special, then it's going to have to go away. And it's going to hurt. It's like going to Disneyland and then you have to leave because all the people that work there want to go home. You say, but this is the happiest place on earth. It should be open all the time. And it's not. So, we come to the Mahayana, we come to enlightenment, we come to all things are connected, we come to the fact that we are connected to every homeless person in Los Angeles. We are connected to every person who's hungry right now. We are connected to them. We are connected to every dog that doesn't have a home and every cat that can't find food. We are connected to all those things all the time. And you may never be happy again because you realize you are with them. They have become your team. The team of suffering creatures and things. And you want to go on vacation, and everybody around you is so happy about going on vacation, but you go on vacation, and all you see are more people suffering. They're suffering on the beach, they're suffering in the forest, but they're still suffering. Wow. So how do you get rid of the suffering? You go into action. And you start bringing suntan lotion with you, offering it to all those people that are burned. Water for people in the forest and can't find their way out. You start helping people to suffer less, realizing it's an endless chore that will never be finished. And no matter where you go, all you see are suffering people and suffering cats and suffering dogs. This is a big deal. This changes your life. You may never be happy again. You may never be able to hide your head in the sand again and look away. And it will change the way you relate to everyone in your life. And it will change the way you look at the world. So, do you want to not be happy ever again? Buddhism may not be the right way to go. Because Buddhism is about ultimately finding your liberation. And the best incentive you're going to have for your liberation is your suffering. And it means you're going to have to look at it directly. Not with sunglasses on, but straight ahead. Look at it and go, yes, I am suffering. Maybe not so much today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe one day cancer. Maybe one day car accident. Maybe one day death. Well, for sure, one day death. 
these things are all ahead. These are in my future. How can I be excited about anything? And yet, and yet, the Buddhist meditator can sit in a backyard and watch a cat chase a butterfly, and a big smile just sort of appears. Because how magical is life? It is the worst possible form of existence and the best at exactly the same time. Because we can understand. We have an intellect and we have an intuition. We have a mind and we have a heart. And those two things can liberate us in the way no other animal can be liberated. They don't have the human mind and the human heart. We are so lucky. But what comes with that is a price. The price is to be kind to everything in your life, which is the most difficult thing to do sometimes. Because people are really hard to be kind to sometimes. Dogs and cats are so much easier because they seem to lack intention and agenda. Though they may have it, cats for sure, but it's hard to see it. So I see the three places we can find wisdom in Buddhism, first of all in the Dharma, the sutras, reading, understanding, second, through meditation, and this is the liberating wisdom, and then third, through just reflecting and ruminating on aspects of life. And I do my best rumination in the shower. I take a shower and all of a sudden insights just mass all around me. Most of them are forgotten as I towel dry. But for those few moments, I have a direct window into the world. And it's just marvelous. But it goes away. And if I keep practicing and keep reflecting and keep meditating and keep reading the sutras, those things will help me acquire the wisdom necessary to liberate myself and others as well. So I'm going to stop there and ask if anybody has comments or questions about what I've said today. And if you think it might be useful to look at the wisdom aspects of Buddhism in that way, or is it just a big waste of time? What do you think? Anybody? Yes? You said that Buddhism might not be the way if you don't want to have that awareness of um, suffering. So, any suggestions like Hypothetically, what if somebody wanted to not choose it and go back the other way? Christianity. It's wonderful. Christmas, Easter. Somebody will forgive you. Somebody offers you grace, life eternal. You know, you look at Buddhism, it is a tough, it's a tough sell. Because what we're talking about is just the practical aspects of living and dying and how to come to a place of acceptance with that, with no fantasy or less fantasy, less ritual, but through wisdom and compassion to see that. So I, I'm fond of saying, and it's absolutely true, before I became a Buddhist, I thought life was pretty good. Now I, <laughs> now I look around and all I see is suffering. You know? Have you ever been driving, and I don't know how old everybody is, but have you ever been driving on the highway and then there's a rest stop? And you go, yeah, time for the rest stop. And you just watch people get out of their cars. Nobody walks very good for the first 100 feet. They're limping, they're bent over. They're, and what I see now is, is, is life, a life they've lived, and the results of that life, and how it's affected their body even walking from the car to the bathroom. And you just go, whoa, what a burden this is. But how lucky we are that we have the chance of liberation as well. So I think there are a lot of wonderful religions out there. And they all work. 
and they're for people who want or need or think they want and need that religion because that makes them whole. And and that's fine. I'm all for it. So when, when people say, ask me about Buddhism, I say, well, I've got to warn you, it's a tough road. And you get a lot of disappointment along the way. And by the time you get to the place where you just have success, you've now understood that success and fulfillment require equanimity, which is balance. So there's no hurrahs at the end of the path. There's no jumping up and down. You just look around and go, <sighs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. And where I get confused about um, Mahayana, Ma- Ma- Mahayana, 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 is um, how do you know that you're not enabling someone to continue living in suffering because you're, you're yeah. perpetuating a, a perspective or a point of view or a narrative that's really in a good way, to survive. It, it's a tough call. I, I'm not sure what the answer is because each, each situation is unique and we're always in a different place when we get to that situation. Even if you've done the same situation five times in a row, you've been different five times in a row. And there are different conditions that need to be addressed each time as well. It's one of the challenges I have in being a hospital chaplain is going to talk to sick people. Okay, what do they need to hear? Do they need to hear, oh, you're going to be okay? You know, everybody's working for you. You have a team who will work and make you better. Or what happens if somebody's going to die? What do you say then? Do you help them die? Do you help them come to a place of acceptance with the impermanence of life and the ultimate demise? How do you get to a place where you feel comfortable, you know, looking at life and death in that way and, and coming to the conclusion that this is what they need? Because you'll never know exactly what they need. They may not even be able to tell you what they need because they don't know either. So sometimes simply being with someone is enough. Simply listening to someone is enough and giving them no advice at all. And I don't know if you've had the experience, but I have, and giving advice, it's rarely taken. <laughs> and I think to myself, what's the point, you know? So what I've come to understand, the best kind of advice I can give is to tell them what I do, not what they should do. So this is what I do, and then I leave and go for a cup of coffee. And they stand there and they go, well, maybe I should do that. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. I don't care. But it's all up to them. I can't save them. Can't even save myself. But I can create conditions necessary for that salvation to happen. So I'm working on those conditions. So I don't know. I can't give you a a black and white answer as to what to do. You know, but... Your heart and your mind, if they're connected, and in Mahayana they call it the heart-mind, it will know. But it may be at a non-verbal level. Hi. Do they pee in the alley? They sleep on my lawn. They 
sometimes they follow me up on my porch when I'm coming home at night. And it's like affecting my quality of life and it makes me feel unsafe. Yeah. And so like, turns out I'm really compassionate when it doesn't affect me. <laughs> like if I'm on skid row with them, I'm all compassionate. But but as soon as it's on my property, mm -hmm. I'm mad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it's like in it, my house, as soon as it's home, and it's, the same thing like this, it's important. Addicts and alcoholics, I grew up with that my whole life. And, but when you, somebody else is talking to me about it, I'm like, it's a disease, it's like an allergy. It's, like, yeah, it's not the same for them as it is for you, and you have to understand that. But as soon as the addict is in my house and it's affecting my life, like all of that compassion is just gone. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really difficult because it almost feels like we're living a lie. We're, we go out and do our compassionate work and then we go home and hate the people that are in the alley. And you just go, what is wrong with me? And it turns out we're absolutely, perfectly normal. That's how people are. So now we have to decide, okay, well, what is compassion? You know? And, and I have come to understand that compassion is the activity of kindness. That's it. And what is love? Love is the intention that creates the activity of kindness. So love is an intention. Compassion is an activity. Sometimes we need to say no. And we need to define our boundaries. And it's perfectly acceptable to do that if you're a Buddhist. But what the Buddhists would like to do, theoretically, in best case scenario, would be to define boundaries in a kind way. Yes. So, well, you have work so to do. Okay, but then I still feel creepy. Like, why is it? Why are you so nice and so compassionate and so willing to help when it's not, you know, when it's twenty miles from your house and just so like infuriated and on the phone with the cops four times a day to get them off your lawn? Mm -hmm. A couple of them have been a little bit creepy, but you know, generally they're just passed on. Yeah. But the potential for her to say. Well, you can still be kind. You can be kind and say, I'm going to have to call the police, and, um, and I would appreciate it if you weren't on the lawn, because this is my space. And I need my space because I still need to practice, because I still need to achieve nirvana. <laughs> you know? That is so good because that means you don't have to do it. <laughs> but let them try. Let the Christian go out there and save them. That's okay. We, we can't all do it alone. We need people to help us. And we all have our own way of looking at stuff. And so that's what they do. Fantastic. They're an ally in your activity of compassion. But don't feel bad about that. There's a book by Ram Dass called How Can I Help? It was written long ago, but one of the best uh, chapters in there for me was the fact that this woman would leave her house every day and the same homeless people would ask her for money and she kept giving too much money away and realized she didn't have enough money for herself to take care of her obligations. So Ram Dass, was counseling her and said, well, what you need to do is make a budget for giving stuff away. So if your budget is $3 a week, then you give $3 a week away, and when you're given the last penny of the $3, 
you tell the person, I can't give any more, I'm sorry. And, and so we need to limit ourselves. We need to limit ourselves. Um, wisdom is not giving everything away and starving to death. Compassion is not giving everything away and starving to death. Wisdom is there to temper our compassion, to bring us to a place of balance. We can't save the world. We can't save ourselves. We can't even save another human being. We can make their life a little better by being kind. And if we go beyond that, that's fine. Food. Sometimes people come and ask me for money. And I say, well, I feed feral cats. And they go, cats are more important than humans? And I love that because I'm thinking, yeah. (laughs) So... So I, I just smile and I just walk away. But, you know, I, I, I spend $150 a month on cat food. That's a lot of money for cat food. And, and they eat well and they're all fat and fluffy. And I'm happy that that's the case. Um, so I, I, I limit myself to that. And there are other people feeding humans who would never feed a cat. So both of us together, the humans get fed and the cats get fed. So we all have to sort of do our part. We're a community. We're interconnected and interdependent. None of us are doing it alone. Um, people need a chance to wake up. Sometimes what they're doing in, in their lack of sobriety is being asleep. But just the smallest thing can wake them up sometimes to a different way of looking at it and a different choice to make. So, But we'll never be that inspiration, generally speaking. We might think we are. So when I volunteer in a community sort of way, I go in, I do the best I can, and I leave. And you know what? Most people don't do that. Most people don't do what you do. So you should take pride in the fact that at least you're doing something. And you shouldn't be guilty when you can't do everything. And you are protecting yourself at home, and that's good. We, we used to have a group of homeless people in the alley behind the meditation center. And between the urine and the feces and the bottles and all that other kind of stuff, what came to my mind was, wow, humans. <laughs> and people would go, well, but I, I go, no, look at humans. You know? You know when a cat goes to the bathroom? It digs a little hole and covers it up. I'm thinking, humans, you can't do that? (laughs) You know? And no, they can't. And so you just look at this stuff and go, wow, humans take a lot of work. Humans take a lot of work. So thank you for doing what you do. But don't feel bad about doing what you can't do. You know? Yeah. Yeah, the human urine, because you want to avoid that one? Okay. Uh, actually, the, the, the alley smells pretty good now. It just smells like trash, so it works. But I, I live and work at the International Buddhist Meditation Center, which is just off of Vermont and Olympic. And I've lived there for 20 years. And, and so my practice is simply living with a bunch of people I don't know, and some of them I don't like, and some of them I have no feelings at all about, and they the same about me, and we just live together. And what I have learned about being me uh, is um, priceless. You, you can't get this stuff living alone. So um, that's why most monastics live with other people. And then if you're a lay person, you usually live with another person or a few people. You know, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, children. And those people absolutely keep you honest. It's like uh, a rock that you find in the desert and then you stick it in a rock tumbler with a bunch of other rocks and they rub up against each other for a few days and they come out all polished and beautiful and desirable. 
And that's how I feel about going back to the meditation center. I am tumbled around with all these people. <laughs> but every time I get to come out of the tumbler, I, I'm, I'm better for it. Yeah. So, and then, of course, the extended family would be L.A., right? The four million people. And they rub up against you, too. You know? So how do you do that? So that's the best practice. You know? Let me get this first thing. Yeah. I've got to, I've got to rethink my question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did I kill the smoker? Yes. You know, it was simply not smoking. And that sounds really weird to say, okay, by not smoking, you killed the smoker. But Buddhism is a religion of not doing. You know, uh, it's, it's a religion of renunciation, of letting go. And, and at that point, I, I figured out a way to endure the craving and desire to smoke. And it became almost, it almost got me high because my, my, my body would react in a certain way when it didn't get the nicotine. And, and I couldn't think very well and I was hungry and, and I was sort of like, whoa. And I made that into, whoa. <laughs> I made it into sort of a good feeling. And, and I just kept with that. Every time that desire and craving came up, I would feel my body shake and tremble a little bit and go, whoa. And it was just fascinating because there was a healthy detachment at that point. It wasn't me that wanted the cigarette. It was a body that wanted the cigarette. The mind had already let go. And um, so that's sort of how I did it. Hard to put into words. Yeah, yeah. It can become a choice, but it's it's a difficult choice, and and I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of uh, Hollywood showing me some flyers about this twelve step programs and a house and that kind of stuff. I I'm fortunate that I've never been in the situation where I felt that I needed that, that I've been able to you know choose my way out of it. Um, but I know there are some people who just really like to smoke and drink and gamble and, and it's the way they have fun. And it's really hard to talk them out of that. Even if they spend all their money in, in Las Vegas, you just, they're still happy because they get a free room. You know? <laughs> you just go, really? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what advice I would give them. But in my own life, uh, I was able to quit smoking. It, it took about a year until the real urgency to smoke left me. But it was a year of learning and a year of, uh, of seeing deeply into my nature. So it became a, sort of a teaching for me, if you will. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think we're out of time. So I think I'll save it till next time. Okay. Great. <laughs> what, oh, it's time. <laughs> Loving kindness meditation. For all the people out there we don't know, and for all the people out there we don't like. <laughs> you know? So maybe there's 10 people we don't like, but there's 7 billion we don't know. So, so they need our love too. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our pets, brothers and sisters, friends, and family, all the people we don't know and all the people we don't like. May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, 
courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.